Book One, Chapter One, Part Two of Lord of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Hogan. Lord of the World by Robert Hugh Benson. Book One, Chapter One, Part Two. Oliver seemed altogether depressed at breakfast, half an hour later. His mother, an old lady of nearly eighty, who never appeared till noon, seemed to see it at once, for after a look or two at him and a word she subsided into silence behind her plate. It was a pleasant little room in which they sat, immediately behind Oliver's own, and was furnished, according to universal custom, in light green. Its windows looked out upon a strip of garden at the back, and the high, creeper-grown wall that separated that domain from the next. The furniture, too, was of the usual sort. A sensible round table stood in the middle, with three tall-armed chairs, with the proper angles and rests drawn up to it, and the center of it, resting apparently on a broad round column, held the dishes. It was thirty years now since the practice of placing the dining-room above the kitchen, and of raising and lowering the courses by hydraulic power into the center of the dining-table had become universal in the houses of the well-to-do. The floor consisted entirely of the asbestos cork preparation invented in America, noiseless, clean, and pleasant to both foot and eye. Mabel broke the silence. "'And your speech to-morrow?' she asked, taking up her fork. Oliver brightened a little, and began to discourse. It seemed that Birmingham was beginning to fret. They were crying out once more for free trade with America. European facilities were not enough, and it was Oliver's business to keep them quiet. It was useless, he proposed to tell them, to agitate until the Eastern business was settled. They must not bother the government with such details just now. He was to tell them, too, that the government was wholly on their side, and it was bound to come soon. They are pig-headed, he added fiercely, pig-headed and selfish. They are like children who cry for food ten minutes before dinner-time. It is bound to come if they will wait a little. And will you tell them so? That they are pig-headed? Certainly. Mabel looked at her husband with a pleased twinkle in her eyes. She knew perfectly well that his popularity rested largely on his outspokenness. Folks liked to be scolded and abused by a genial, bold man who danced and gesticulated in a magnetic fury. She liked it herself. "'How shall you go?' she asked. "'Voller, I shall catch the eighteen o'clock at Blackfriars. The meeting is at nineteen, and I shall be back at twenty-one. He addressed himself vigorously to his entree, and his mother looked up with a patient old woman's smile. Mabel began to drum her fingers softly on the damask. "'Please make haste, my dear,' she said. "'I have to be at Brighton at three. Oliver gulped his last mouthful, pushed his plate over the line, glanced to see if all plates were there, and then put his hand beneath the table. Instantly, without a sound, the centerpiece vanished, and the three waited unconcernedly while the clink of dishes came from beneath. Old Mrs. Brand was a hale-looking old lady, rosy and wrinkled with the mantilla headdress of fifty years ago but she, too, looked a little depressed this morning. The entree was not very successful, she thought. The new foodstuff was not up to the old. It was a trifle gritty. She would see about it afterwards. There was a clink, a soft sound, like a push, and the centerpiece snapped into its place, bearing an admirable imitation of a roasted fowl. 
Oliver and his wife were alone again for a minute or two after breakfast, before Mabel started down the path to catch the fourteen-and-a-half o'clock fourth-grade sub-trunk line to the junction. "'What's the matter with Mother?' he said. "'Oh, it's the foodstuff again. She's never got accustomed to it. She says it doesn't suit her.' "'Nothing else?' "'No, my dear, I am sure of it. She hasn't said a word lately.' Oliver watched his wife go down the path, reassured. He had been a little troubled once or twice lately, by an odd word or two that his mother had let fall. She had been brought up a Christian for a few years, and it seemed to him sometimes as if it had left a taint. There was an old garden of the soul that she liked to keep by her, though she always protested with an appearance of scorn that it was nothing but nonsense. Still, Oliver would have preferred that she had burned it. Superstition was a desperate thing for retaining life, and as the brain weakened, might conceivably reassert itself. Christianity was both wild and dull, he told himself, wild because of its obvious grotesqueness and impossibility, and dull because it was so utterly apart from the exhilarating stream of human life. It crept dustily about still, he knew, in the little dark churches here and there. It screamed with hysterical sentimentality in Westminster Cathedral, which he had once entered and looked upon, with a kind of disgusted fury. It gabbled strange, false words to the incompetent and the old and the half-witted, but it would be too dreadful if his own mother ever looked upon it again with favor. Oliver himself, ever since he could remember, had been violently opposed to the concessions of Rome and Ireland. It was intolerable that these two places should be definitely yielded up to this foolish, treacherous nonsense. They were hotbeds of sedition, plague-spots on the face of humanity. He had never agreed with those who said that it was better that all the poisons of the West should be gathered rather than dispersed. But at any rate, there it was. Rome had been given up wholly to that old man in white in exchange for all the parish churches and cathedrals of Italy, and it was understood that medieval darkness reigned there supreme and Ireland, after receiving home rule thirty years before, had declared for Catholicism, and opened her arms to individualism in its most virulent form. England had laughed and assented, for she was saved from a quantity of agitation by the immediate departure of half her Catholic population for that island, and had, consistently with her communist colonial policy, granted every facility for individualism to reduce itself there ad absurdum. All kinds of funny things were happening there. Oliver had read with a bitter amusement of new appearances there, of a woman in blue and shrines raised where her feet had rested. But he was scarcely amused at Rome, for the movement to Turin of the Italian government had deprived the Republic of quite a quantity of sentimental prestige, and had haloed the old religious nonsense with all the meretriciousness of historical association. However, it obviously could not last much longer. The world was beginning to understand at last. He stood a moment or two at the door after his wife had gone, drinking in reassurance from that glorious vision of solid sense that spread itself before his eyes. The endless house-roofs, the high glass vaults of the public baths and gymnasiums, the pinnacled schools where citizenship was taught each morning, the spider-like cranes and scaffoldings that rose here and there and even the few pricking spires did not disconcert him. There it stretched away into the gray haze of London, really beautiful, this vast hive of men and women who had learned at least the primary lesson of the gospel, that there was no God but man, no priest but the politician, 
no prophet but the schoolmaster. Then he went back once more to his speech-constructing. Mabel, too, was a little thoughtful, as she sat with her paper on her lap, spinning down the broad line to Brighton. This eastern news was more disconcerting to her than she allowed her husband to see, yet it seemed incredible that there could be any real danger of invasion. This western life was so sensible and peaceful. Folks had their feet at last upon the rock, and it was unthinkable that they could ever be forced back on to the mud-flats. It was contrary to the whole law of development. Yet she could not but recognize that catastrophe seemed one of nature's methods. She sat very quiet, glancing once or twice at the meager little scrap of news, and reading the leading article upon it that too seemed significant of dismay. A couple of men were talking in the half-compartment beyond on the same subject. One described the government engineering works that he had visited, the breathless haste that dominated them, the other put in interrogations and questions. There was not much comfort there. There were no windows through which she could look. On the main lines the speed was too great for the eyes. The long compartment, flooded with soft light, bounded her horizon. She stared at the molded white ceiling, the delicious oak-framed paintings, the deep spring seats, the mellow globes overhead that poured out radiance at a mother and child diagonally opposite her. Then the great chord sounded, the faint vibration increased ever so slightly, and an instant later the automatic doors ran back. She stepped out onto the platform of Brighton Station. As she went down the steps, leading to the station square, she noticed a priest going before her. He seemed a very upright and sturdy old man, for though his hair was white, he walked steadily and strongly. At the foot of the steps he stopped and half-turned and then, to her surprise, she saw that his face was that of a young man, fine-featured and strong, with black eyebrows and very bright gray eyes. Then she passed on and began to cross the square in the direction of her aunt's house. Then, without the slightest warning, except one shrill hoot from overhead, a number of things happened. A great shadow whirled across the sunlight at her feet, a sound of rending tore the air, and a noise like a giant sigh, and as she stopped, bewildered, with a noise like ten thousand smashed kettles, a huge thing crashed on the rubber pavement before her, where it lay, filling half the square, writhing long wings on its upper side that beat and whirled like the flappers of some ghastly extinct monster, pouring out human screams and beginning almost instantly to crawl with broken life. Mabel scarcely knew what happened next, but she found herself a moment later, forced forward by some violent pressure from behind, till she stood shaking from head to foot, with some kind of smashed body of a man moaning and stretching at her feet. There was a sort of articulate language coming from it. She caught distinctly the names of Jesus and Mary. Then a voice hissed suddenly in her ears, "'Let me through! I'm a priest!' She stood there a moment longer, dazed by the suddenness of the whole affair, and watched almost unintelligently the gray-haired young priest on his knees, with his coat torn open and a crucifix out. She saw him bend close, wave his hand in a swift sign, and heard a murmur of language she did not know. Then he was up again, holding the crucifix before him, and she saw him begin to move forward into the midst of the red-flooded pavement looking this way and that, as if for a signal. 
Down the steps of the great hospital on her right came figures running now, hatless, each carrying what looked like an old-fashioned camera. She knew what those men were, and her heart leaped in relief. They were the ministers of euthanasia. Then she felt herself taken by the shoulder and pulled back, and immediately found herself in the front rank of a crowd that was swaying and crying out, and behind a line of police and civilians who had formed themselves into a cordon to keep the pressure back. End of Book One, Chapter One, Part Two Recording by Linda Hogan